Hi again, everybody. It's me, JR Man. Welcome to your Life's Work Podcast. How are you? Welcome to day 38. Two days away from day 40 on the big social media fast series. Every day we've been podcasting since January 1st to February 9th. Yes. And today's day 38. Jason Phillips on the big show today. He's a prop master in, uh, in Los Angeles, California. Working on a Nickelodeon show right now. He's going to talk about props. He's going to talk about writing. He's going to talk about Los Angeles. He's going to talk about, you know, your red dot. You know, where you at and what do you want and how sometimes, um, you know, you lock down into things that you love and it's not about achievement. It's about just continuing the passion of what you love and not setting a metric on it necessarily that's going to equal this, that, or the other thing. But the metric is really going to be about pushing through into the creative or pushing through into the passion and the desire that you have. And that's the true measure of it. But I'm not going to give it all away because Jason's an amazing person and we're probably going to do a part two because the interview is really freaking good. I'm JRMan, JRMan.com. I'm a spiritual director and mentor. Um, And listen, I take the guesswork out of the divine. I take the guesswork out of God. Not Not that he needs that to happen, but that's what I do. (laughs) <laughs> because I know a lot of us are constantly questioning what the hell we're doing with our lives. Well, you don't have to, and you don't have to live with fear and anxiety and anger and all the crap that surrounds you. Let me help you. But first, my very dear friend of 30 years, Jason Phillips. You there? I am. Well, do you mean physically or metaphorically? I, however you want to do it. However you want to do there, <laughs> you can do that. Well, I'm always sort of drowning in an existential bucket but yes for all intents and purposes i am here well we'll do do the bucket real quick tell me about drowning in an existential bucket because that sounds like like a great film <laughs> well well it's uh it's it's the curse of i guess a uh, creative people who don't always actualize the the, the proper outlets but uh <laughs> you know i'm still in search of my own purpose what yeah i was gonna say that uh I mean, yeah, I totally agree. Drowning in exit. I want that to be like a T-shirt, a bumper sticker, or or ready, <laughs> or or the next person to run for president of the United States campaign motto for 2020. Uh, it sounds good. Well, I could also uh, bring like a Walkman battery and a uh, and a ballpoint pen over and give you like a prison tattoo that says <laughs> "I'm drowning in the next essential bucket." If you'd like. <laughs> All right, next, <laughs> listen, next time we have lunch, you're doing that to me. That's what's going to happen. Okay. All right, sounds good. I'll work on my penmanship. Okay, we're rolling, just so you know. Uh, tell everybody. Oh, well, okay. first off, you're like one of my favorite people in the in the entire planet, first off. I just want you oh, to know. I, I, would have to say, I would have to say likewise. It is a, the, the mutual respect society right here. Yeah. Okay, so tell everybody who you are, where you are, and what you're up to in your existential bucket. Okay. Well, um, my name is Jason Phillips, always has been, and I live in Los Angeles, California. And uh, presently, this has little to do with my existential crisis that uh, continues, Uh, but uh, I am presently working in the property department for a television show for Nickelodeon called Henry Danger. And uh, for the last six years, I've been working as a prop person um, on Nickelodeon shows. So that's become sort of a a thing for me, like a steady gig. uh, 20 years previous to that, I worked uh, as a set dresser and also in the property department for commercials, which is a whole different ballgame. 
So um, that's what I do professionally. And then what I've done for well over 25 years is write uh, screenplays and prose uh, shorts and also uh, for the last about year and a half, maybe two years, I've been I've, I've had a few novels in the air that I continue to work on. Yeah, that, that that's what fascinates me too about you, and because we're gonna talk about the we're gonna talk about the business in a minute. But I I want to talk about these novels because I know I what the hell was that? Hold on, dude, did you hear that? That was crazy town. Um, sometimes when you record podcasts, things happen in in the computer that you just don't know what they are. Okay, so the novels. So I it's know the, the ghosts in the machine, d- yeah. dude. Dude, it's it's AI, man. I mean, there there's some there's some kind of validity to like this AI thing gonna kill us one day. But let me get back to the novels. I I've okay. known you. We've known each other since college. Um, that's so, correct. You've known me since I was eighteen years old. Holy crap, balls! That's so, it. You, just seems you've so. Known me, you've known me for thirty years. <laughs> It just seems so far. It's honest to God. Sometimes Which is weird it, because I knew you when you were my age. I was eighteen and you were forty-eight, right? <laughs> what? An, <laughs> see, that's where I'll drop the first asshole on the on the on the. Big, <laughs> the so okay, so I know you squirrel away sometimes to 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 write because I I mean you've told me that and I've seen pictures on Instagram. Um, and so this novelist thing isn't necessarily new for you because even when I knew you in college, you were a writer. So tell me about this, this thing that sits inside of you to like push those novels out. Tell me about that. Well, you know, my, my first real, I mean, I grew up from the time I was 10 years old, I was writing short stories, particularly genre short stories like horror um, you know, werewolves, haunted houses, things like that. I was always fascinated with that sort of stuff, and it came easily to me. Uh, coincidentally, um, that's what I've sort of, when I write a short story, it usually airs towards, like, the old EC Comics kind of stuff. You yeah. know, uh, set them up and knock them down with some sort of a thriller or horror-type stuff. And I've written a lot of screenplays like that. But as far as prose goes, um, it happened... I, I started turning my nose completely to prose, turning it towards prose, I should say, not turning up at it. It's the opposite. I started focusing on prose after I had a massive disillusionment with um, writing spec screenplays. I had written, I mean, at this point, it's probably dozens, um, plural, of spec screenplays and had success with some, some were, uh, options. I, I wrote and directed my first feature when I was 25. It got produced and distributed. We went to Sundance with it, or not in the Sundance Film Festival, but we were at Sundance with it. And, um, and then it was a, it played at, in Cannes, again, not at the Cannes Film Festival, but at, in Cannes at the Can You Dig It, I believe it was. I didn't, I wasn't unable, I was unable to go because uh, one of my best friends was getting married, and I was the best man, and I had to make a very difficult decision, probably the most difficult decision I ever had to make at that time, which was honor my acceptance of best man or get flown to France for free to watch my film play it in Cannes. And I, I picked being honoring my decision to be best man, so I stayed in town. But um, anyway, that being said, I was off to a, a good start at a very reasonable age with my film career and I was directing music videos and 
things were going well. And then things started to slow down and I continued to write screenplays. And then uh, right before my daughter was born, uh, this was 10 years ago, uh, my buddy and I had written a, a comedy screenplay and it was by far the most widely uh, read and we went to many, many, many incredible meetings. Uh, every, you know, people from Paramount to John Favreau's company to MTV Films. We met with, I mean, the, you name it, we met with them. And uh, it was very unusual because they had all read the script, requested it from my manager, and had read it when we went in. So we didn't have to pitch it. We didn't have to do any of the usual stuff, get through the gatekeepers or anything. We were meeting with VPs of development and the development people immediately who loved the script, but everyone loved our style, but they just couldn't figure out what to do with the script, which is kind of always the irony because if you write something unique and that was that funny, people don't necessarily know what to do with it, except for in this case they did. And the last people we went to, or I should say the script got sent to, because we didn't actually meet with these people, was uh, Happy Madison. And because uh, that was the last basically comedy shop that we hadn't shop hadn't had meetings with, and because of the way my manager had gotten it to them, which was uh, couriered, and then subsequently had no um, electronic paper trail to uh, to to show that they had received it, whatever. About six months later, uh, I read in Variety that. Kevin James and Happy Madison were to produce a movie that Kevin James was going to pen, I guess, uh, at that particular time, called Mall Cop, which was the title of our script. No and, kidding. Uh, so we tried to do everything we could um, to figure out the steps and how to take some sort of action. But had we, my manager got us in all these great places, but didn't have any cachet. Like say if I was repped by CAA or William Morris or something like that, they could have had the brawn to go in and say, Hey, you need to get our clients involved or we shut this down. Well, my manager didn't have that sort of power. So we just got steamrolled and that threw me into an enormous, um, you know, sort of disillusionment and depression because everything seemed to have been aligning. You know, my daughter was, on the verge of being born and she would be born into a world where her father finally got a screenplay sold, you know, that wasn't an independent production that I directed and things like that. So, uh, I, I really lost my case for it. And, uh, so how typical, how, how typical is that story? Is that story typical for people? And because this, I mean, I know the business is a grind up there. I mean, there's no doubt, but it it, is that typical? Cause I've heard kind of, a similar story or stories before. Yes. Um, in fact, I know a guy who had a very similar experience. However, he had really a thorough, um, a, a thorough course of action. Um, and he, he did something pretty radical in order to get the attention of the business. And he did get a small settlement for uh, something that he, that was uh, taken from him. But uh, unfortunately, uh, in our case, there was nothing we could do. And uh, it is very typical. The weird thing, too, is when you go into a pitch meeting, uh, and when we were going into those pitch meetings, 
it's completely normal for them to go, we love your style, we love your script, however, we don't have, a, you know, anything on our slate that right now that, or anything available, you know, uh, a spot to produce this movie, but we love your style, we love you guys, what else you got? And so when you're in the pitch meeting, not only have they read your script, and you can't copyright a title or a premise. Right. So um, it's you're giving them a completely actualized work, and then subsequently they're asking you, well, what else you got? And you usually pitch two or three other ideas that you have, which are completely unprotectable. And you, you do so. That's the hardest part about creating original spec work and not having uh, incredible, you know, strong representation. Yeah, because if, if, you, if you don't, you're, you're screwed. There. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, you know, I came up in show business during... When I say came up, I don't mean, you know, gained the success that I wanted. I mean, just came up working through it. You know, I started in 1992. I moved directly here after I graduated college. And um, and then, uh, you know, started working immediately as a PA and then worked through, you know, the ranks into art department, props and things like that. And I, quite frankly, thought that was going to, that I was going to fulfill what I had set out to do. I never really expected that at 48, I'd, I'd still be working as a prop guy, but it's a good living and it's a great way to earn a living. And I enjoy it because there's a massive creative element to it. However, you know, it, it was cripplingly disappointing and now less disappointing to me because um, I'm really obsessed with that portion of, of my creativity. I'm not, I don't necessarily aspire to the same things I aspired to before. Yeah, I was going to – and, you know, if I can stop you, the – because I agree with you. Like, I think, like, like I don't necessarily see you not having had fulfilled something that you were dreaming because, obviously, I've known you the course of time. Like, you've always been ultra, super creative. So – how do well, you, you, I mean, how do you look at that now? Because I do, I do hear disappointment, you know, that, you know, I hear, I hear some disappointment that's coming out of you at that point. So, you know, oh, how, sure. do, you know, how do you, what, most people, I guess what I'm saying is like listening to this story are like, holy crap, this guy's like, he's in the business. He works there. He's been there since 92. He, he you know, I mean, you've got a lot going on, but people that go to LA, like, People who go to LA like have a, a sometimes have a real small little red dot that they want to hit, but the business is so huge, sure. right? I mean, the business is just so gigantic. You can do all kinds of creative things. Well, that's a that's the thing. You know, you hear it over and over again, and it's, you know, it's the oldest you know uh, expression in the book. But the you know the 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 mantra is never give up. And the thing is, though, is that um, I think it's very wise to reinvent right it's um and and this doesn't come from someone who's sort of like accepted it thrown in the towel and is laying on the canvas you know so this is this is this is me saying legitimately that it's i really found it rejuvenating to reinvent it's not that i've given up it's that i've reinvented the way i'm coming at something if you're going if you're going for something, that red dot, as you put it, and the pathway to that red dot isn't 
the the way you envisioned it in your mind's eye, then how long the question that everyone has to ask themselves, and I've asked myself a hundred thousand times, is that is it, it, then maybe that's not the direct path that you had thought. Yeah. Maybe there's other ways to get that red dot. And the red dot, as you get older, you know this as well as I do, is it changes too. The red dot, it's a different hue of red. It's a different size. It's in a different location. It's a different thing. I have my priorities are different. The things that I want to do creatively evolved. So it's all very different. Yeah, I, I I tend to move in it like this, like particularly when I particularly when I'm sitting with people that are working in the business because the business can be so achievement driven. Like if you don't have credit here, there, over here, like if you don't have that, people tend to get very exhausted very quickly. And I tend to look at people and go, hey, man, like how much more valuable are you? outside of that achievement. And sometimes people can't answer that, frankly, which, for the record, gets you leaving L.A. much quicker because you don't feel like you've reached some kind of freaking thing that's going to prove to everybody that you're worthy. But that's not what I find with you, and I think that's my point back to you, is like, I don't find that with you. I find that you have always been creative. Like, I can remember one of the first times I met you going, holy shit, this guy is like, not only is he super creative, but he's just a ball of energy that just needs to be like untied and like let loose <laughs> into the world. You know what I mean? So, right. so I mean, yeah. that, I mean, that's the way I see you. Even, even this, Jace, even this, like the way you have your little tiki bar place set up in the backyard there. Like, I, you know, I, I'm standing in right now. Yeah. So, like, I, I've seen, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures on Instagram. And for me, I'm like, Oh, that's the red dot. I mean, that's that's just such a massive expression of who you are. And like, I yeah. don't I don't think I want to meet you on a set, although I will. But meeting you in your tiki bar is more attractive than that. I mean, do you kind of get what I'm saying? I do. I you know to um to go back to what you were saying about people leaving L.A. Um, what I had found at and this is just to put a, a finer point and, and sort of a, a punctuation mark on what I was alluding to earlier too, with the, you know, feeling disillusioned and depressed. And, and that was the first time in my life that I had been this creativity that you've known me to exhibit sort of left me. And so I didn't physically leave Los Angeles, but I, something worse happened to me. I physically left my creativity. Ah. Um, and, and when I say physically, I just stopped writing altogether. Right. I stopped creating. I, I lost my... So there are worse things than leaving Los Angeles. The, yeah. the worst thing you can do as a, as a creative person is is abandoning your creativity. Yeah, man. And that's the never giving up part. That's the whatever. I don't really... Um, now I write with a goal in mind, with a nebulous red dot in mind. But really, I'm writing because I'm compelled to. And, and I enjoy it. And then you keep the red dot in mind, but it, but the most important thing is the work, not the dot. Huh, so well said. So I've got, you know, I guess you could say that I moved out of metaphoric LA being creativity, but then moved back. Well, listen, and, and, and it, much, this, this sounds to me like you actually have a good grasp on your existential soup bowl. <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, I mean, what I'm hearing, because I mean, here's what here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that 
there's a deep maturity in you when it comes to what's happening inside of you versus what other people chart as achievement. So, I mean, for me, like that's a massive, massive maturity in you. And it's, and particularly knowing what you do now, because I mean, this house dude is a massive fan of what you do. I mean, there's, (laughs) I mean, you know, you invited my daughter onto your set on Nickelodeon. And to this day, and to this day, the way, the the way your wisdom and the way your generosity and compassion to Mia has moved her is like she notices all the things that you do now in a really creative and wonderful way. Um, well, I'm so glad to hear that. I was excited to have her and you, the, oh, you know, there. Gosh, but uh, that's, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. So okay. So uh, so so thank you for sharing that. So let's move into the whole prop business now. So educate educate everybody on a couple terms here. So what. What what do you are you're called a prop guy a prop master a prop winkantini like what the hell are you? Okay, well uh, I I work in the prop department. I'm assistant prop master. The prop master is the basically the equivalent of my boss. I've been a prop master on many TV shows, but uh, this particular one and the last few I've been working in conjunction with the prop master. So I'm assistant prop master and. Um, basically there's three in a, in a, let's say I can speak specifically towards a Nickelodeon sitcom, kid sitcom, three camera, the one, the, the, like the, uh, like the one that you guys came to, uh, when I was working on, uh, game shakers. Sure. So it's, you know, you have the three pedestal cameras and, uh, usually like a jib arm, uh, like a fourth camera and, uh, or not. But, uh, so Basically, um, there's three people typically in the props department on those types of shows. There's the prop master, there's the onset assistant, prop assistant, and mm-hmm. then there's the third prop assistant. Right. And what what and each are designated different um, tasks to do. The prop master shops, um, goes to the meetings, uh, picks, you know, usually handpicks. And this is all up for grabs because I've worked some jobs where I did ninety percent of the shopping. I did a lot of, you know, other things, built a lot of props that were on camera. And this particular one I'm working on, um, there are very defined positions. So the prop master goes to the meetings, hears what the production designer, the director, the creators, the showrunners, what they, the writers, what they all have in mind. And the prop master procures the props. Now, what's really important, and I think that people don't get, is that Props are anything that the actor touches or interacts with physically or sometimes specialty things that, you know, move or have articulation. So there's, we work directly in conjunction with the art department and set deck, set deck and the art department do things like the look of everything in the, in the room. So if you were standing in your living room, set deck, the production designer in the art department, not the department I work, would have created what the look is going to be. The set decorator would have gone out and shopped what the sofa is going to look like, what the end table is going to look like, and things like that. Then the set dressers come in and put all of that furniture there. Yeah. Then subsequently, in the scene, when you go and reach for anything from a plate of eggs or a glass of milk or... Um, this ray gun 
or whatever wacko props it is in whatever show I'm working on, whatever that item is, we are responsible for. And the prop master would have shopped or we would have built whatever that ray gun is or whatever the six-foot pancake has to be. Or I've done so many ridiculous things in the world of kids' shows because kids' shows are always – there's always 200 pizzas or a (laughs) six-foot pancake. Yeah, I was going to say, you you built a six-foot pancake, I remember, right? Wasn't it like this massive car-sized pancake? Yes, that's correct. And uh, that that particular one, I mean, I've built I've built six foot, but not built. I actually had to cook, uh, <laughs> you know, a six foot stack of pancakes, but the, the a stack vertically, but the six foot in diameter pancake was actually um, uh, upholstery foam that was about two inches thick, and then I wrapped the sides down to look like a pancake, and then painted it in such a way that it. It looked exactly like a giant pancake. Yeah. And that's just practical stuff because to make a six-foot pancake, you can't do anything with it because it would fall apart. It would be yeah. whatever. So you have to, now, you know, come up with alternatives. How do you – Are you, so obviously there's a script that gets pumped out, and then you guys are reading the script much differently than anybody else's, right? Because you're looking for stuff, right? Exactly. We do we do our breakdowns. Uh, in fact, today I have to do a breakdown of, of the new scripts that uh, we're starting. The, the, the see, yeah, we do our breakdowns on the scripts, and so when we're reading it, we we have to read obviously and understand the narrative of the story and what's happening in it. But most importantly, we're looking at what the actors are interacting with and what through the context of the story, what is that item going to look like or be. So. If it's in the script, it'll just say and picks up a complicated device. Right. And it's the prop master's job in conjunction with the production designer and the special effects team to figure out really what it's going to look like. That's the production designer and the prop master. And then once it looks like something, we talk to the special effects department and say, hey, we need to put LED lights in this thing. And it needs to be able to flip open. And there's a mechanism inside, but someone has to design those things. And that usually falls in with the production designer, the art director, and the prop master. And then subsequently, either build it, help build it, or wrangle it. Yeah. And, you know, on set. So these, so, I mean, this uh, isn't, this sounds like a hell of a lot of work. Like the more, because, you know, typically you're working a half hour show, right? So these are half hour, these are 30 minute shows. Yeah, there are 30-minute shows. There, um, they, with a 30-minute show, the, the schedule is, you know, it, it's, it goes at a, a neck-breaking pace because we get the script, and then by the time I do my breakdown, um, the prom master gets the script earlier, gets a draft, a pre-table draft of the script, and starts shopping and looking at stuff, presenting stuff. And then by the time I get the table draft, I break it down for me, knowing what's in store. Then uh, in this particular case, on a Monday, I go in and I pull rehearsal props. And that's when we start rehearsing it with the actors and running through. Now, to do the show, we, we rehearse for a day, usually from 8 a.m. till about 4. And then we do a live run-through for the writers and the producers and the director and it's like doing the show as a play. So we do it live. 
and everyone moves from set to set and the actors act it out as they're going to act it out on the show when we go to filming. And the, so that's, so the writers and the producers and things can see what jokes are working, what props are working, whatever. So by Monday we've had, we need to have as many hero props. And when I say hero props, but those are props that are going to go to camera. They want to see as much as possible. Now, we barely had any time. And the first time these actors have rehearsed, God bless them, with these props was just for the last few hours. Yeah. But we're doing the show live for everyone. (laughs) Then the second day we rehearsed, Tuesday, we rehearse the same schedule. And then we do a run through for the writers, producers, director, and Nickelodeon exec. And everybody sees how that's going to go. And then we get notes. This prop we've worked on for a week or two could now change to something completely different. Yeah. Could go away, could change. It goes from a complicated device to an ostrich. And, you know, we're like, what? You know, and so that is a huge thing we have, you know, a huge hurdle. And once we do that, we go to shooting Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we shoot it for three days. So we've only rehearsed for a handful of hours and only had that much time to see how the props are working with the actors. And so it's, it's very complicated and very fast. Yeah. You've got to know what the hell you're doing or you're, I mean, I was fascinated the day that, that we went up to see you. Um, and it it was a, it was a tape. No, it was a rehearsal day, right? That was a rehearsal day. It was a run through. It was a run through. Yeah. It was a rehearsal day, but you came for the run through and watched us do it live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, so I'm amazed. And then afterward, you show us that you guys save everything. Like you don't like, I mean, maybe there's, Uh you know, some perishables you chuck away, but you guys save every single prop you make or create or buy. That's right. And, and it's not unusual for them to come back. We save everything until the episode airs, just in case there needs to be uh, a reshoot or they need to do any pickup shots or whatever. And then subsequently, anything that was real pivotal um, and a bigger prop, we, we archive just in case that particular prop will come back in another episode, which is very common. Right. right. So, yeah, we tend to save everything. Um, the smaller items, you know, things like, uh, oh, that's the coffee mug they used, or that's the wristwatch that a particular character that likely will not come back. That goes back into general stock, into our kit and things like that, or we get rid of stuff. But, uh, the majority of the stuff, especially, you know, I would say 100% of the specialty props we save. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and uh, we've only because I only do thirty minutes on the big show, but you and I, we could go. We're gonna have to do a Jason Phillips part two because there's so much more I have to know. Um, <laughs> in the remainder time that we have, we only got a couple minutes left. But uh, tell me about your family, real quick. Tell me about uh, all the wonderful people in your house. Oh well, uh, my wife Amy Jo, she uh, designs movie posters. She's a, a an entertainment designer of the highest order. She's awesome. She she does uh, she does DVD packaging, specialty packaging. She does movie posters, um, and uh, she's a VP of creative over there. And she's been there for twenty eight years doing that. Wow. She designed the m- movie poster that uh, for the movie that I wrote and directed. Um, she's done all sorts of other. Um, things in her life involving design or otherwise. She's an extraordinarily creative person. Um, and uh, and my daughter, 
uh, Daphne. She's uh, hysterical. Uh, she's Kent. She's hysterical, and uh, she's also super creative. And uh, and we got a good little little unit of fun happening. I know your house. We, your uh, house must be just a damn great time. Is all there is to it. That's all I can say. I can't wait to have you over. Uh, it's 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 like a it's like a fun house. How has it been? House. How has it been? Thirty years, and you've been in L.A. since '92, and and I've been down here for as long as I. I mean, we usually have lunch together and see each other, but we we usually don't do house yeah. visits. But but I'm telling you what, I'm making a I'm making a firm commitment that uh, I'm coming to your damn house, even if I have to stay for a weekend. Sounds great. Sounds great. I, I'm, you're going to have to uh, stay in the garage. That's but, fine. Uh, That's but, fine. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, Dude, uh, I, so I've stayed in worse. All right, listen, part of my whole process here as we wind down is to, you know, because I'm moving, I'm, so, I'm, I'm fasting social media for 40 days, and so I'm, you're day 37 because this airs tomorrow. And uh, I just got to say, man, like when I put together this little list that I put together for 40 days, your name popped right into my head. And, and I tell everybody, and I'm telling you, uh, dude, you, you are a source of inspiration for me. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. You met, you have met so much to my daughter, like, you know, having, having that so little, nice dude, you. seriously, you, you really moved her that day by just inviting her into your world. And, and that was sweet. So I appreciate your friendship, dude. And I just, I love the hell Likewise. out of you so much. Yeah. Right back at you, brother. I love you too, man. You're, you're, you're one of the good ones. All right. Jason Phillips, uh, prop master, Hollywood inside guy, writer, uh, director, uh, creative bean, existential bucket of soup guy. <laughs> uh, good friend. Um, 30 years, man. I don't know how that happened, but uh, that 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 happened. I'm JR Man, JRMAHON.com. I'm a spiritual director and mentor. JR, what does that mean? It means I'm going to help take the guesswork out of what you're doing. Uh, it means we're going to take a look and tear apart and get into what's going on inside and uh, maybe heal some relationships or heal some pain or get you through fear or take away some of that anxiety or, you know, kind of help define what the divine is in you and around you. Um, all that stuff we can do. Uh, numbers and uh, emails are on the website. You can call me. I'm the guy that will pick up the phone. Like, I, I know a lot of guys, man, don't pick up the phone. I will pick up the phone unless I'm chatting with somebody. Uh, and then we can book a session. We can book sessions uh, over the phone, over Skype, over FaceTime, face-to-face if you're in Southern California. I even have folks that I text. Um, so we can do that. I also have a, a nonprofit called Tabletop Ministers where we, we provide spiritual direction and pastoral care free for people who can't afford traditional levels of therapy. Uh, you can go to tabletopministries.online or just go to jrman.com and hit the link there and go search that out. We're always looking for people uh, to donate into that ministry because it takes uh, a hell of a lot of resources to make that ministry happen uh, because we're dealing with people, and that's what we do. We're not going to say no to the need for love, and uh, people come a-knocking or people come to call, and we're not turning them away because there's no cash. So we need you in that respect. So if you're out there and you uh, and you have the means to uh, be a monthly donor or, or just a one-time uh, donor, we are all in on that. So, hey, I love you. Thank you very much. Tomorrow's day 38. We're almost done with this 40 days. Thank God. <laughs>
<laughs> and then we'll commence regular podcasting after that. But thanks for being along on my passion. We'll talk tomorrow.